0: welcome to the j scott outdoors podcast today we have brian rimza my friend who just got back from 22 days in the northwest territories hunting the Mackenzie mountains brian was able to harvest a awesome doll sheep and a mountain caribou and i'm excited to have brian here on the adventure on the podcast to talk about his adventure we've had him on the podcast before and um had really good feedback from it so brian let's have some fun how you doing man i'm good jay i'm good glad to be home uh it was a long trip longest trip i've ever
1: been on and it was a great trip uh just you know everything went very well and obviously success helps you know make trips even better but uh everyone on the trip that was there even guys i didn't know were successful so it was just a really awesome uh adventure
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, Before your hunt, I kept trying to get uh, times coordinated between the two of us with our schedules to go over some of your gear list and some of the things you were taking. Um, And we weren't able to do that. But uh, fortunately, we can talk to you now about uh, all the gear that you, you know, and all the prep and everything that you did to try and make the hunt a success. And then maybe um, what was, you know, some of the things that stood out as, you know, Uh, a real positive and then maybe some things that you would do differently now that you've you know gone on your first you know quote-unquote mountain hunt um you know backpacking style hunt in 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 the north northwest territory so it's going to be fun um why don't we just start out by um talking about you know how you booked your hunt with arctic red river how that came about, and then and then you can just dive kind of right into your travel plans and and uh, how everything unfolded. Yeah, well, um, I had booked a trip to
1: the Northwest Territories to hunt the Mackenzie Mountains for doll sheep and uh, mountain caribou with a friend of mine, Mike Jones, from Phoenix. Uh, we worked together, been friends together, shoot tournaments together, and. Initially, we booked the trip in 2014, and we booked uh, with a different outfit. But things changed, and we had uh, to kind of scramble back in December to find a new place to go. And in doing so, uh, a lot of the recommendations from some very uh, experienced mountain hunters, like uh, Cam Foss and uh, some other individuals, I talked to Brendan Burns, and you know got some different recommendations. Ultimately, uh, led me to Travis Molinar with uh, Arctic Red River. Outfitters, And, uh, you know, looking back, that was probably just meant to be, and it was a good choice, and it really worked out well. And, you know, I I couldn't be happier with our overall decision of going there and, you know, hunting with Arctic Red. It was kind of a hectic time because, obviously, we had to make arrangements to change everything with about six, seven months to go which made things a little more difficult. But it uh, all worked out in the end. You know, Arctic Red is in the Northwest Territories. This is way up in the Northwest corner, um, about an hour. The base camp's about an hour out of uh, Norman Wells. And the Northwest Territories pretty much encompasses the Mackenzie Mountains. And there are five or six different operations that hunt in the Mackenzie Mountains. And those operations are... Um, most of which are helicopter operations, so they'll either fly you to the top of the mountain and you set up your camp there, and they use the helicopters to help move you around and also get your animals out, which is very helpful and beneficial. Uh, Travis's operation is a backpack hunt. I mean, you're flown in and a Super Cub dropped off, and wherever you want to go is uh, based on where you hike yourself to, and... Your drops off in the bottom and the creek bottoms is where the landing strips are at and you work your way through and uh, you got to hike yourself to the top of the mountain and get things done. Um, but everything Tavis promised and, and to, to me in booking this, uh, he lived up to my expectations. There were never any issues. His planning was spot on and exceptional. And, you know, I have zero complaints about the operation and, uh, and Tavis and his guides and his whole outfit.
0: Brian, the, I've been able to see some of the pictures uh, from your adventure, and uh, the country, for sure, the, the sheep country, um, it, it, it doesn't look near as thick as I thought it was going to be. Um, like the bottoms didn't look that thick. Um, some of the first kind of initial questions I'd had, and, and you know I think it's really cool that you and I have exchanged texts back and forth um, you were texting me quite a bit during the hunt and what have you, but I actually haven't talked to you, um, so kind of all this is fresh to me as it is to the listener, but uh, talk about the country, actually, where where you were dropped off and, and, and you know, how it, the pictures make it look pretty open. Yeah, it is real open. I think
1: that uh, one of the things that you had a big question about was kind of how thick it was and if you had to do a bunch of brush busting, brush busting to get kind of... Up into the mountains and uh, the benefit of being so far north in the northwest territories is that that nightmare of brush busting through the alders and stuff that you and dar experience on your goat hunt you don't have that issue in the nwt i mean there was no what i would consider brush busting at all there are some places where like the willows are thicker you know down along the creek bottom and stuff here and there but my experience on my hunt I didn't have anything that I would consider brush busting at all. You basically utilize the Creek bottoms to get everywhere you wanted to go. And then you hiked out of the Creek bottoms to uh, get up on the mountains. Cause obviously uh, the sheep, you want to get high and get up above them is the goal to spot them from above so that you can kind of make a game plan. Cause most of us know that trying to make a game plan on sheep from below is a difficult thing. You know, one of the recommendations I had during my hunt, because of the intention was to kill a sheep with my bow, um, was to go kind of mid to later in the season because the weather would change and it would help push the rams kind of down off of the, the extreme peaks and kind of into some more accessible country to, to hunt. And I would say that that uh, was definitely the case. The particular ram that I had killed had been hunted by two other hunters, uh, prior to me getting there and things just obviously didn't work out for those hunters. I know the second hunter that hunted him sat on him for four to five days and he was, uh, on just a very extreme peak to where you might've been able to get a bullet in him, but, uh, it was going to be a disaster with the recovery and he may have taken quite the tumble if it wasn't, uh, you know, it's uh, depending on where he was shot. And so they offered to go look for a different Ram and hunt a different location. And, uh, you know, it worked out to my benefit because obviously then I got a chance to pursue the, you know, to pursue him. Uh, they actually had nicknamed him before I got there. Uh, they nicknamed the Ram that I killed Curly, which obviously is a fitting sheep name. Uh, you have some experience <laughs> with a Ram name and, uh, um, so I thought it was kind of cool that that's what they had called them, but it, had, it was no part of me naming him. It was all named before I got there. But, uh, yeah, the country is uh, – the elevation is not very high. Uh, I think base camp is somewhere around, like, 1,000 feet, and even at the top of the mountains you're hunting, you're topped out at, like, 6,000, 6,500 So elevation was never an issue. And I didn't even realize that kind of in my preparation. I thought the elevation would be more of an issue, but you're starting out basically at sea level. So um, elevation wasn't an issue. The country consists of, you know, pretty intense mountains that some parts of the mountains are covered with kind of like tundra type grass. And then other parts are that black shale and you've got your cliffs. And uh, in order to get around up at Archer it's, there's two Super Cubs in camp along with another plane at 206, which is a little bigger, and then there's a float plane. We utilized the Super cub and I landed in a gravel bar in the bottom uh, of a creek that came off of the Arctic Red River itself, and we hiked up that bottom about five miles on day one and set up our camp and began Glassing. I mean, when I walked off the plane, my guide, uh, Ryan Johnson from uh, the Edmonton area, you know, he's 20, I think he was 27 years old. He'd been guide for Arctic Red for five years. And I believe my ram was the 25th ram that he had killed, uh, or guided, I should say. And, uh, you know, he was very knowledgeable, knew the area, were, had a lot of bow hunting experience, which was uh, exciting for me because, obviously, things take a little... Uh, bow hunting is a little different requirement. And uh, Ryan and I got hit it off right away. I mean, Ryan was looking at a legal ram when I got off the plane. And uh, it was a broomed ram on one side, but we had no intentions of hunting it. It was very clear that Ryan wanted to kill Curly, and I was uh, totally good with that. I mean, he showed me a video of Curly when I got off the plane, and I didn't have any, <laughs> there was no uh, arguments on my part trying to kill that ram.
0: That's awesome. Why don't we back up just a sec and talk a little bit about your travel uh, arrangements uh, and then, you know, walk through that, where, you know, things that you would maybe do differently a- as you're telling the story, and then let's just dive into kind of day one and just start going through everything that happened.
1: Yeah, when you book with uh, Arctic Red, Tavis sends you a, like a 13-page packet that's very informative. I mean, things are very well broken down. My hunt dates were August 21st to September 7th and that's more than obviously 15 days but Tavis allows for two days travel on the front and two days travel on the back so when he says you're getting 15 days of hunting you're getting 15 days of hunting and that was kind of refreshing because sometimes you get a 15 day hunt and you end up losing two days to travel Uh, but that's not how Travis runs or Tavis I'm sorry runs the operation and uh you know, so he sends you that packet. It has all the information you need. He tells you when he needs you in Norman Wells and when you can expect to return to Norman Wells. And he provides you everything that you need to uh, kind of book your hunt and know what you need to do. So a couple of things that, that I did um, just being on travel before and knowing things is that when I look to book my flights, um, the option was, in order to get to Edmonton, because that's where you ideally you want to fly out of. The option was that to either go through Seattle or go through L.A. Well, I've been through L.A. before as a hunter, and it's just not as convenient, so I opted to go through Seattle, and that proved to be uh, pretty beneficial because people in Seattle were just easy to deal with. They've dealt with hunters and they've dealt with guns, and it was not an issue at all. So I flew with Alaska Airlines up to. Phoenix to Seattle, Seattle to Edmonton. And we spent the night in Edmonton at a hotel there that Tavis had already had recommended, and it was very reasonable and inexpensive. There's a shuttle that you up from the hotel, or from the airport to took you to the hotel. Um, the next morning, we flew out from Edmonton to Yellowknife to Norman Wells, which is uh, on a different airline, but it's affiliated with Alaskan Airlines. So that was all one, one trip type deal. It was pretty slick and once you arrive in norman wells it's about 12 31 o'clock same time when you arrive in edmonton so you arrive midday and i kind of set it up that way because i figured if for some reason we lost bags or anything like that we would have enough time to acquire those bags if need be um i stayed at the niss hotel which is a recommendation of This is the most inexpensive one but it was nice enough and they had a good good food right there in the hotel so it was good and they had freezers on the way back for you to put your meat in and it was just they were totally in tune with dealing with hunters in norman wells you stay at the heritage hotel and when you stay at the heritage hotel uh, it's basically the only option in norman wells and it's pretty pricey uh, because you're pretty much limited to that's it but uh, it was good they had everything you needed they had a restaurant there you could eat at so i mean it was uh not a bad place to stay at all and then they had a storage room where you could basically downgrade your hard cases downgrade all your stuff and uh only take from norman wells you only flew out with your backpack with your gear and you carried your rifle on the plane or you carried your uh your bow or both on the plane
0: and that's from Uh, norman wells to the base camp yeah so in, a, in essence, they, they let up, you store your stuff there. Right. They let you store your stuff there. And that's all set up through
1: um, Tavis. So you can, it was easy. I just, the air, the airplane ride from Norman Wells to base camp, I just paid Tavis for, so I didn't have to deal with any of the money. And it's all set up. When you get off the plane in Norman Wells, the people from Northright Air meet you there. They drive you to the to the hotel and they tell you, look, we'll be here at 830 in the morning to pick you guys up, be ready to go. And they were punctual and ready to go, and uh, we flew out of Norman Wells on a uh, twin otter. So, I mean, we had we had four guys with our gear, and then we had uh, like a thousand pounds of fuel and a whole bunch of other gear that we flew in with because it's a pretty large plane. And from Norman Wells, to base camp, it's only an hour plane ride, you know, 45 minutes to an hour plane ride. So it's pretty short. And uh, Tavis's base camp is nestled right there on the edge of the Arctic red river and a uh, nice landing strip, nice cabins and everything like that. And we'll get, get into the cabins and things like that more and kind of the accommodations. But that was the travel. Um, you know, I, I guess one of the things that I had planned to take my own food and then at the last minute, I kind of like chickened out on some of the stuff because I didn't want to pay for an extra bag or an overweight bag fee, which is kind of silly in the aspect of like the trip is not exactly cheap and uh, you know, to spend an extra seventy-five bucks for a bag over fifty pounds is not really a big deal.
0: In essence, but you, it was fine. Pack fifty pounds worth of everything you ever wanted, and and have a little bit of, you know, ha- have exactly what you want for seventy-five bucks. And and you chose to not do that, and it ended up you didn't have everything you absolutely wanted. Right, it wasn't a huge issue at all. Like Travis provided a lot of things, but. For Alaska
1: Airlines, it's fifty bucks for an extra bag it's under fifty pounds and seventy five bucks for a bag that's over fifty pounds so i mean i didn't I could have either taken an extra bag or I could have just overloaded one of my bags and it wouldn't have mattered and it was minimal. The amount of money was super minimal and the other thing is is that you have basically a whole i mean like eight to ten hours in Edmonton and Edmonton's a huge city, so like we actually went to Walmart and to a sporting goods store, and like you could have purchased anything you wanted there if you didn't want to fly with it, you could have purchased it there and then just paid for an extra bag going from Edmonton to Norman Wells. Right. So, okay. but it That's was, good it, it worked out fine. It was just funny. My logic and my thinking about it was kind of silly because I had all my stuff already packed and ready to go. And I just, at the last second, kind of decided I didn't want to pay the, the extra bag fee, which was silly in the grand scheme because it was a very minimal amount of money when you're talking about the overall part of the hunt.
0: Yeah, and you actually um, put quite a bit of time into bringing, you know, figuring out all your own food. So you didn't take any of your own food? No, I took um,
1: a bunch of my own mountain house meals. I took like a trail mix that I had put together, and then I took a bunch of my own candy bars, and I took my own um, cliff bars, and my own coffee and my own drink um, things of that nature gotcha. but what I didn't take, well, there's no real way to take cheese from Phoenix and it's 107 degrees so I know like Jason Harrison recommends cheese squares and stuff like that and I, I would have loved to have had them but there's no real way to do that so you have to buy that in Edmonton just because the temperature in the plane, I wouldn't want to keep cheese at 100 degrees in the belly of a plane um, and then the other thing that I kind of gave up on was like bringing like chips or something like that. And I would have liked to have had some sort of like a salted chip or a cheese or something like that. It would have been nice to have when you were there. Um, but those are also things that you could have purchased just right there in Edmonton without any issue. Gotcha.
0: Okay. So, um, and then as
1: far as the tra- go ahead.
0: no, you go ahead.
1: As far as traveling, like, you can always hear horror stories of people traveling. I traveled with my Studio Icon Pro 7200. I took the lid off and put it in the bag, but I had... I wore my hunting boots, uh, which obviously is kind of a pain going through security, but one thing I don't want to go on a sheep hunt without is my boots. And I wore... I had a pair of you know solid-color hunting pants, and I had a shirt, and I took my reindeer with me and my optics with me, um, on my, you know, with me on the plane at all times. Like I didn't gate check it or anything. I always had it with me, and my goal there was like, if something happened or bags got lost, I knew I had enough gear to go hunting. And it wasn't an issue, um, but it—I was glad to have it. One of the few, a couple things that I wouldn't travel with is uh, don't bring your trekking poles in your carry-on bag because they won't let you take them because they consider them a weapon. So make sure you check them in your checked baggage. And obviously you can't fly with any fuel canisters, but Tavis has all that stuff to provide to you. And the other thing is is that when you you fly from Edmonton to Norman Wells, they were concerned about having bug spray with DEET in it. So if you have bug spray with DEET in it, it may be wise, uh, maybe not to mention that. Um, because as everyone knows bug spray with DEET is the only thing that works and like for your hunt on the early season hunt we didn't have any bug issues but on your hunt in that early season you're going to want good bug spray right
0: so for the listeners uh, out there I'm going in 2018 I believe it's July 15th through the 25th or something like that 14th through the 24th or you know dates like that in mid-July of 18 and It's the first hunt at Arctic Red River, where Brian, I believe you went on the third hunt at Arctic Red River. So you're saying uh, you didn't have bugs at all, but everyone's saying the first hunt, definitely there will be bugs. Yeah, we had bugs a little bit here and there, but nothing that was required any
1: sort of... uh bug spray or anything like that the only time that bugs were even remotely a little bit annoying was actually in base camp because it's much lower in elevation and the weather is much warmer
0: gotcha so can you check deet in your bag you just don't have to mention that you have deet is that what you're saying
1: technically you can't have checked deet in your bag so if you have it you probably
0: should just say you don't have it (laughs) uh if that's the case And and then the other thing What's the option of getting DEET if, for whatever reason, it got confiscated or what have you? Would you ship it early, ahead of time, or what would you do?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the only way that I know of. You could get it there, is to ship it there ahead of time. And I don't know why it was such a concern. The other thing is, is like, these were only the concerns for Canadian North, which was that's the airline that flies you from Edmonton to Normal Wells. It was they were, you, could, you could carry on a lighter in your bag in your check in your carry-on, but you couldn't have a lighter in your check bag. So I'm not sure how that works out. And then you couldn't if you had a stove like a pocket rocket or a jet boil that you had used, you weren't allowed to take it with you. It had to be new and never used. Which was interesting um, to say the least. And obviously your ammunition on the U.S. side of things, like Alaska Airlines didn't care when I flew from Phoenix to Edmonton if my ammunition was in the same container as the gun, but in Canada, they they cared about that, and then when you went through customs, they cared about it. Nobody got upset at me, but I just took it out and put it in a different bag. Gotcha. Uh,
0: I enjoyed actually flying Alaska Air um, when Darn and I flew up to uh, Anchorage, um, actually, the staff and such seemed really, really good, and the plane seemed uh, seemed nice. Uh, I actually enjoyed Alaska for sure. Alaska Airlines.
1: Yeah, they were great. I mean, there was no. It was smooth, smooth sailing on the way there. Um, on the way home, everything was good. The one thing that I would advise everyone of, because I didn't expect it this way, is we cleared U.S. Customs in Edmonton. And so that was kind of interesting because that's not what I expected. I expected we'd clear it in Seattle when we landed, but we cleared it in Edmonton So make sure on the flight home when you're flying from Edmonton to Seattle or wherever that you give yourself three, three and a half hours to clear customs. We only gave ourselves two hours, and everybody was great. Customs was absolutely not an issue. But, I mean, we made it with about 30 minutes to spare, um, and we didn't have any hiccups going through customs or anything like that. And we actually flew home with our sheep horns and our sheep capes in our bags. So I'm glad that I thought of that. But the one thing I'd recommend is that uh, Mike and I both took oversized roller duffel bags with us and they were only 75% full. So, and they had food in them. So on the way home, we consolidated and put all of our clothes in one bag and put both sheep horns in one roller duffel bag with, both capes in the bottom of the roller duffel bag and we stuffed a bunch of clothes in there and cardboard and stuff around the horns and we flew our sheep horns and our capes home as checked baggage which was super awesome because it's the bag weighed 81 pounds and i think i paid 75 bu- or 100 bucks to fly home with it but i mean i had it right here in town and there was never even an issue when when you clear customs your bag goes through a, an x-ray machine and the lady's like oh, you guys did really well, and that was that was the end of that comment. I mean, they were more concerned if I had lithium batteries in my checked baggage than anything else. Really? Yep. So, it was, customs was great. Uh, TSA was great. Uh, of course, I got pulled out to get checked. Mike got pulled out to get checked on the way there, and I got pulled out to get checked on the way back, but it was no issue. Um, the paperwork they had was right there for you when you came to customs, and it was a they deal with hunters all the time, so it was completely a non-issue. We flew home with 50 pounds of meat, and then both sheep horns, my life-size sheep cape and Mike's shoulder mount sheep cape, and then our caribou we transported to the cargo, uh, Canadian North Cargo, and had them shipped to a um, shipping distributor in Edmonton because we kept our caribou horns intact rather than splitting them so that they can be entered into the uh, Pope and Young record book.
0: So that's something I didn't. How did you get the caribou horns back?
1: So Canadian North has a cargo department because everything in Norman Wells that has to go anywhere has to be flown cargo, and so you just drive to the cargo, um, the cargo shipping department of Canadian North, and you the ladies, the lady who was there. I mean, it's they deal with it all the time with moose tracks and everything. You just go in there, and she measures the width and the length and make sure that you have. A, the time's properly protected, and she takes the weight, and then she they ship it from Norman Wells to a distributor in Edmonton called Talon Distribution, and then Talon Distribution will ship it to a warehouse in Phoenix, and then you can pick it up at the warehouse in Phoenix. Um, it's kind of an additional cost. Like the two full-size caribou racks and two shoulder capes was $264 Canadian, which is roughly like $200 U.S., and then when Talent ships it to Phoenix, I'll have to pay another... Fee to do that and to cross customs, which I'm sure will cost somewhere in the neighborhood of 500 bucks. Um, But if you were willing to split them, depending on the size of your caribou, you could potentially just put them in a long duffel bag and ship them home just like we did with our our sheep and you would save yourself some money.
0: Sure, sure. Good stuff. Okay, so you get to Arctic Red River Base Camp uh, on the flight uh, into Base Camp. How scenic was that? Um, uh, weather, weather was incredible the day we arrived, um, and we
1: flew and it was just beautiful. I mean, it was amazing country, perfect day. Uh, when we land at base camp, we basically unload our stuff. Um, we're shown a cabin where we can put excess gear and Tavis hands you a food bag that your guided pack, <coughs> excuse me it's your guided pack and for me i had some of my own food so i went through it and took out what i didn't want that's what i did want and packed it all into my backpack and then i was within i would say within an hour and a half of arriving at base camp i was in the super cub on my way to meet my guide
0: and is that typical where you fly in and immediately that day you're flying out i mean obviously weather permitting Yeah, as long as the weather's good, that's the way it was planned.
1: We would have actually, we almost flew out the night before into base camp, um, but we had a little one extra person, so it was just we didn't have the ability to take the bigger plane, and so they ended up just waiting to fly us out the next day, which was fine. It gave everybody a chance to shoot their bow and shoot the rifle. Um, The Heritage Hotel in Norman Wells provided us with a truck, So we were able to drive to the rifle range and shoot our guns a couple of times. We were able to use that truck on the way home to drive to the game and fish department to have our sheep checked and to drive to the cargo shipping department and drive to the airport. Um, So they're pretty user-friendly in that aspect of things. Uh, The owner can be a little bit rough around the edges, and when you start talking to people, it tends to be a pretty common theme, but you only deal with him sometimes. But uh, other than that, they were very helpful. They gave us a truck, and we were able to shoot our bows basically right there in the parking lot and make sure everything was good to go. And it was nice to have that five or six hours in uh, Norman Wells to get everything really tidied up as to what you wanted to bring um, for the actual trip.
0: I guess um, one question I would have is, like, if you did it again, you would know exactly what you want to bring. So would you, would you even need that time? Or do you still feel like there's a time when, you know, like if, if now that you've done it, can you, would you be able to go and just have everything you need and be like, Nope, I'm ready to go. I don't need any time. Yeah. Um, but that flight, like our deal for that was that
1: the flight they were going to fly us out in a smaller plane, but because we had an extra person, it didn't work out that way. But, yeah, I mean, you would have everything pretty well locked down. But, I mean, remember, you're when you land in Norman Wells, all of your gear is in a duffel bag, and you're carrying on your backpack. So now you have to take all that gear from your duffel bag, put pack it in it. your pack, and yeah. pack it the way you want it, and then go. Right. Okay. okay. So there is a little bit of time to do that.
0: That makes sense. Um, okay, so you arrive in base camp. Uh, you guys... And then, and then you were immediately, within an hour and a half, you're, you're flying out in a Super Cub to go meet your guide. How long had, had did your guide just stay out there? Was he coming off another hunt, or did he go in a couple days ahead of time to scout, or how did that work? Uh, my guide was coming off another hunt, so he,
1: had, he didn't really have any time in base camp, and that's pretty standard. Um, they don't have a whole lot of time in base camp, and so he had come off another hunt. We flew out there and met him, And uh, we were off and running. He had hunted those sheep on the first, he had hunted Curly the first hunt. And then another hunter and and his guide had gone in there trying to kill him on the second hunt. While my guide was over doing a caribou hunt. And then my guide was back in there with me on the third hunt.
0: So one question I would have is how much of a disadvantage do you feel like, you know, next year I'm going on the first hunt? what are the positives and negatives that you see as going, you know, first? Um, and, you know, just I know you'll probably touch on it, but from an aspect of, you know, y- y- there may be rams that they don't know about. And like in your case, they knew about this ram, which was an easy, yes, we're going to go hunt that ram type of scenario. But what, what do you see as positive and negatives of, of me going an 18 on the first hunt?
1: Um, I think the first,
0: the positive on the first hunt, like anything, is you got first dibs on what's there.
1: So I mean, the sheep haven't been hunted, and you get to, you know, figure out what ram you want to kill, and you know you're the first go at it. So that's that's a positive uh, with the fact that it never gets dark on the first hunt. So I mean, you basically are able to lighten yourself up a pound because there's no need to carry a headlamp or batteries for that matter um and generally speaking the weather is milder so i mean you could get away with a 30 degree bag and just wear your super down and lighten yourself up that way and you really don't need some of the warmer clothes for the most part typically on that that first hunt um you I would say the drawback is going to be that, you know, you're going to be looking at country and looking for rams for the first time. And, you know, some of the, you know, no one's really been in there and it's not going to have a, a, they fly it and see some sheep here and there occasionally, but it's not like they're going to have a great grasp like they did online of like, Hey, we know this ram is here. He's going to be somewhere in this mountain range. We just have to turn him up, which you and I have been on hunts like that before. And I mean, it's, it's real easy, and it gives you some motivation when you know a big ram is there and you've just got to turn them up. It gives you that motivation to go a little harder and look over the next ridge. Um, the sheep, from my understanding, on your hunt will be higher on the mountain because the bugs will be, can be bad, and so the rams will be up higher where the wind is blowing, um, which can be a difficult thing to get them out and kill them on, but it also can be a better thing because sometimes they're more visible.
0: Right, and so how much of, if the rams are at the top, do you still feel like on my hunt that I will be going, you know, hiking to the top to be looking for them? Or will, will since they'll be out a little more exposed and out in the open and up high, will we be able to run those drainages, um, you know, looking for sheep from the bottom?
1: Well, I mean, I think in general, a lot of it on, on the early hunt, and I haven't been on the early hunt, so I mean... But you will run the bottoms and look for the sheep and glass up. But you're also going to be going up and glassing down onto the sheep and things of that nature. Um, And just you know, you'll be doing what we normally do on other hunts, just you know, trying to cover and glass and look as much country as you can. And it just means that you may have to go higher once you find that ram. You, I suspect, you're going to glass that ram and find those rams from the bottom, and then you'll end up having to get up to them kill them um i mean i'm not an expert on the early hunts, but i know the weather helps push them down lower and the later in the season the lower they get on the mountain
0: how spooky were they
1: um one of the things that ryan told me right from the beginning is he said look if you get on a ram and he catches you he's going to give you a minute or two to shoot him so he said, if you see the ram catches you, do not just sit there and act like he's not going to see you. Just come to full draw and try and shoot him. And it was good advice. And when I did stalk the ram uh, that I ended up killing with my bow, I had him at 70 yards. And there were six rams bedded. They didn't know I was there. And I had a full view of the number two ram. And I had just the head and neck of the ram I wanted to kill. And I was just trying to figure out how to get that extra yard to get high enough to shoot the sheep. And I was still hunkered down because I didn't know that I was there. And unbeknownst to me, the ram that I ended up killing ended up spotting something he didn't like or smelling something he didn't like. And he stood up and looked up at me for like a minute or two. And I never noticed that. All I heard after that two minutes was the the rams running through the shale. And so I kind of lost an opportunity because had I known he was looking at me, I would have just kneeled up and shot. But um, they will give you an opportunity um, to shoot them. And then, you know, if you're below them and they see you and you're not acting all kind of stealthy, a lot of times they'll let you get close enough to to make it happen with a rifle, especially on that first hunt.
0: How were they compared to some of the desert or some of the Rockies that you and I have been around together and, and real similar to that in that, you know, if you're if they see you and you act like you don't care that they're there, they don't really care, um, you start, like you said, acting stealthy through the brush and stuff, then they get a little, little more curious? Yeah, I would say they kind of fall in between the 6A Rockies
1: that I've spent a lot of time around and a desert sheep as far as. I think desert sheep are a little more wary than the dolls were, but I think the dolls are more wary than the Rockies that I've been around in six A.
0: Okay. Okay, so let's go back to the first day. So you fly into base, or you fly into your actual, um, you know, drainage that you guys are going to hunt. You meet your guide, and he says, "What? We're going to go hunt curly." Yeah, he. he was actually looking at a legal ram at the time, and
1: but he said, "Hey, I got a ram that we want to kill." And I had kind of heard that rumor from everybody else. He showed me some video, and it was—I mean, obviously a ram that I would admit I was tickled to, to go chase because it was a, I was looking for a flared-out ram is what I what my hope was. Um, if I had to pick a sheep, that was what I wanted. I, I the broomed look was not something that I was that I wanted. It uh, doesn't mean I wouldn't have shot a broomed ram, but I was hoping to kill kind of a flaring, you know, ram that had, you know, some tips to them and things like that. That was kind of what I was hoping for. And so uh, Ryan and I met, we loaded up our packs and we basically had a nice hike up the bottom of the drainage, uh, five miles. It wasn't bad. We probably crossed, we crossed the, I think it was Fossil Creek, is it what we were hiking up? And we crossed the, the river, I don't know, probably 10 or 12, 15 times on that five miles. And the river's generally speaking anywhere from six to maybe 18 inches deep in certain parts. And so having the, uh, having boots and then having your gators, uh, hooked on your boots was obviously you had to have gators. Uh, Ryan had told me that there were some other hunters that showed up that didn't have gators and stuff like that. And if you don't, I mean, you're going to have wet boots and wet feet pretty much. Throughout the hunt, you'll have some days where they're dry, but the gators sure help keeping your feet from just being damp as opposed to being, like, soaking wet.
0: Would you do anything with your creek crossings different, knowing what you yeah, want Yeah, um Yeah, I would, I would make sure, even if you
1: have synthetic or leather boots, to treat them uh, before you go, like right before you go with the... Uh, boot oil and any other waterproofing solution that you'd like i would make sure to treat my gators with some sort of a waterproofing solution whether it be camp dry or something like that and then i would bring like a little bungee cord or a velcro strap that i can put around my gators um on my boot so like right about mid gator where just below the top of my boot i would belt or like put that little strap on there and i'd just keep those straps either on my gators all the time or i keep them on my trekking poles or something like that just to kind of help that water from coming up from the bottom and getting toward those boots but i mean it's not a must-have if you have the gators and you really want the gators tight as you can get them so that you kind of create a seal between the edge of the gator and the edge of your boot but having that like a velcro strap or something like that or a way to cinch them right there onto the boot would be uh would be helpful.
0: Okay, now, and did you wear rain pants on your walk so that you you so you had an extra layer as well and then put the gator over the rain pant? Would you have done that differently? Um,
1: I didn't wear my rain pants
0: on the initial day in,
1: and I don't think it was a huge issue. Um, I know we did wear rain pants on different days, and um, you could have easily worn just the rain pants and not even worn any any other pants on the hike in because the weather was nice enough and it probably wouldn't have hurt anything. Um, but the gators do a pretty good job. And then, you know, I was wearing two use gators and I was wearing the, uh, the Rebel K uh, Scarpa boots. Not the ones that... Ha- I was not wearing the ones with the built-in gator, but those synthetic boots uh, are nice because, man, they sure dry really fast. If you get a little... If they get a little wet, they... I mean... setting them out or wearing them in the sunlight they dry pretty quick so it was nice to have and they're so lightweight they were definitely a nice pair of boots to
0: have with that stiff sole yeah for sure darn i really liked ours on our alaskan goat hunt um okay so you guys are walking up the drainage and you know your creek you're crossing the creek back and forth but you know are you is the drainage, you know, climbing some serious elevation, or is it basically fairly flat, oh, p- pretty easy five-mile walk? It was an easy five-mile walk. Um, the The drainage is anywhere from
1: 150 yards to 300 yards across, and uh, it was not a bad walk at all. I mean, and we weren't trying to kill ourselves on it or anything like that. And it We lo- actually camped like right at the a, bottom.
0: Like, um you know, just a big alluvial river drainage where you're basically just walking on kind of sand and river rock, I would assume from the pictures that you sent me, uh, going up the drainage. Um, and then I would assume you're crossing the Creek. Maybe you get to places where there's a little bit of brush or something, which forces you to cross the Creek and go up, you know, the open part of the other side. Is that why you were crossing the Creek back and forth?
1: That's exactly right. I mean, sometimes the the river would run along the edges and so it would kind of push you up into the alders and stuff and we pretty much stayed out of that stuff as much as we could um just because it was easier to walk in the in the in the river bottom and um but yeah it wasn't a bad hike at all i mean i had heard stories of the guy to walk you 20 miles on the first day that was not not my experience with ryan at all and not the experience that i had i mean other guys did do some longer hikes but Um, you know initially on that it's kind of nice to get you know I could have gone seven to ten miles if we needed to but it's nice to kind of get that under your belt and kind of get your legs kind of going and kind of get used to what you're doing
0: for sure and so you guys go up but but a part of why maybe you only walk five miles is because he kind of already knew where this ram was going to be hanging and kind of had a plan whereas maybe like on my hunt it's just going to be you know we may be going a mile and glassing a mile and glassing and then walking five miles and glassing and then, you know, end up 10 miles up the drainage, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, we knew where we were going. I mean, I think had it been like a first season hunt, we probably would have been hunting that first ram that he had spotted. It was legal being that he was a bow ram. And I had everyone had told me that if you're trying to kill a sheep with a bow, you, every legal ram, you're going to stop. Right. And, um, but yeah, I mean, that whole five-mile hike, I probably saw, I don't know, 25 or 30 different sheep on the hike, because there were sheep on both sides of the drainage, and there's no mistaking a dull sheep on a mountainside. I mean, they, they stick out quite a bit.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you that. I mean, were you able to see a bunch of them just with your naked eye? I mean, that's what one thing Darn, I, we didn't even take tripods on our mountain goat hunt. We knew our guide would have one. I think I'm going to obviously take one on the sheep hunt, but... I mean, we basically could see every goat with our naked eye. Um, was that kind of how it was with the sheep? Yeah, I mean, they were real easy to spot. You could easily, if you didn't see them with your naked eye, you can easily spot
1: them, you know, with handheld binoculars. I took 1042 ELs. Um, I would have taken 1250 ELs, but I like, I wanted to have an additional rangefinder finder in, in case something went bad with my Leopold rangefinder that I had. Um, I didn't have any issues. Initially, I did take my tripod no matter what, even for my binoculars. And initially, I did not take my spotting scope. But after killing my caribou, uh, when they flew in to get my meat and my horns, I had them bring my spotting scope back, and I carried it the rest of the trip. And I was happy to have it. Um, and I will say that, you know, if your gears, if your optics are better than your guide your guide will be more than willing to carry that stuff with you. Typically uh, my guide had the exact same binoculars I did and he had the exact same spotting skill that I
0: did. So it didn't matter. That's good stuff. So you guys are walking up, you're going to set camp and now you're, you're primarily archery hunting you, at this point. I, I believe you don't even have the rifle with you. Um, and you're, you have a mountain caribou and doll sheep and, was your initial plan just to shoot a caribou if you saw one in an opportune place, and focus on sheep hunting, or talk a little bit about your strategy of, of what you guys were trying to do? Uh, well, Ryan agreed because I was bringing a thirty because
1: I had a thirty caliber rifle that he would carry my gun, and so rather than carry his gun, he carried my gun. So I had the rifle there the whole time. Um, but my strategy was all I cared about was killing a sheep. Uh, If I killed a caribou, it was going to be an opportunity thing, or I would have already killed my sheep, and so I was going to go hunt caribou. So I had the tag. I didn't really intend. I mean, I didn't, one way or the other, my goal was to kill sheep. I didn't have to kill a caribou. But uh, as it turned out, we got to camp. It was probably, I don't know, 5 or 6 o'clock. We glassed around and hung out and talked and kind of, Talked about expectations and you know just kind of I guess kind of sized each other up, figured out where we were at, and we got along great, and we were both you know very similar, like-minded individuals. Um, and Ryan said, you know, hey, we'll get up at eight o'clock in the morning, and uh, we'll start our hunt from there, and I'm like, okay. So we went to bed. It doesn't get it didn't get dark till like eleven thirty, but it was getting light at like four. 4 30 in the morning and so i slept and then woke up at like i don't know six thirty. was kind of excited so i got out of the tent and was glassing around looking at the trams, <laughs> looking at sheep and uh, just kind of having a good time and ryan was kind of getting ready in his tent stirring a little bit and uh i heard something behind me and basically i, I heard something walking in the river rocks and i had had a conversation with ryan the day before i was like hey you know like how bear aware do I need to be? And he's like, you need to be aware all the time. And I was like, okay. So I heard something walking behind me, and I turn around, and there's a caribou bull standing there at 30 yards. And I was like, uh, okay. So I yelled at, at Ryan and said, yeah, he's standing there looking at me. <laughs> and uh, so I, I, I yelled at Ryan, and he's like, you know, he's what? And I was like, there's a pretty good caribou bull out here. I need you to tell me if he's big enough to shoot and uh as he's kind of getting organized i am creeping over to my tent to get my bow and get my release on and uh about the time i get my bow my release on the caribou is kind of circling us kind of making a wide circle around us to go past us and uh i hit the caribou and he was like 58 yards away and ryan i hear him unzip the fly of his tent (laughs) and uh I turn around and he's looking out the tent with his binoculars, and he was like, "I shoot that bull." And uh, so I came to full draw, and the bull was walking at sixty yards, and I shot him quartering away with my bow, and he ran out there about two hundred fifty yards and just tipped over, and uh, that was uh, that was how the first day started.
0: <laughs> oh, that's and it amazing! It turned out to be the only caribou I saw. That is amazing. In the pictures, um, he had rubbed his velvet. How long do you think he had been out of his velvet? maybe a day okay and then um they pretty dang big bodies on them would you say they're how do they compare to an elk uh smaller than an elk but bigger
1: than a mule deer um and you know once you kill something you got to get it out so we he was dead at eight thirty, and we went over and worked on him together and We pulled off a quarter, and I deboned the quarters while Ryan taped out the head, and then Ryan had to turn the lips and the ears, uh, the nose, and then we started our hike back to the uh, airstrip and got to the airstrip. I think it was about 8 o'clock, and they they flew in and picked up my caribou, and Picked up the meat and we turned around and hiked back the five miles and got back to camp and uh, went to bed. That was pretty much our first day, but it was I felt kind of blessed because
0: we'd only lost a day and killed a great caribou. Right. So that left you with fourteen days to hunt sheep. So when you guys went back to the airstrip, you, Ryan, you guys must have already called in and said, "Hey, come, you know, make a pickup." Right. You didn't wait till you got to the strip and then call. No, once we had the, once Ryan had the cape taken care of for the lips and ears and everything and
1: turned, he called and said, hey, uh, we'll be at the airstrip at eight or whatever. And they showed up literally like we unloaded our packs and the airplane landed and we gave them the stuff and off they went.
0: Nice. And that's when they brought me my spotting scope back, which was nice to have. Cool. So you were able to say, now, you know, you're going to be just sheep hunting. So bring me my spotting scope. Right. Okay, so now you go back and you go to sleep, and so now you have, basically, you didn't hardly waste any time. You just burned one day, you've got a great caribou down, and you've got 14 days to hunt sheep. Um, Had any sign of curly at that point? No, uh, we were camped right below where the
1: ram had been uh, on the second guys that had been in there, and there were two rams there. You know, they're when I, they were like 1,000 yards from us, and those rams didn't have him curly with him. And so the next morning, we went up on top, and basically we hiked up this big, long ridge and got up on the top of the main ridgeline of the uh, mountain range. And right as we talked out, the weather rolled in, and we were fogged in. sometimes we couldn't see 25 yards. And we kind of weathered it out. We were getting kind of rained on all day. Um, And we hung out there for, I don't know, five or six hours. And finally, it was like, I don't think this is going to lift. And we ultimately made the decision to just hike back down. And we didn't do much walking around on top because we couldn't see. And we weren't willing to start bumping things around. Um, And so we just hiked back off the top and went back to camp and the rain up there was not like a torrential downpour like we get in Arizona. It's more of a just a constant rain. You know, you're not getting hammered with just big drenchers, but you're just constantly getting rained on.
0: Right. Kind of kind of a <laughs> annoying rain because it never stops. Right. And so once we got hike back down to camp, the next day was kind
1: of a bust because the weather socked us in. I mean, the the clouds were all over and it was raining all day, and uh, on those hunts where you have that much time, you expect to lose some days to rain, and you really don't want to... The guides really are hesitant to go out on just a nasty weather day because you just don't need to. And when you're out in those nasty weather days, you're getting soaked, you're getting wet, and there's no real, there's no really a way to dry things out. So we just spent that whole third day in the tent. Um, I read a tent. I read a book. I was thankful to have a book. I ended up reading two books while I was there. And um, it was definitely a, a must-have item. And we just hung out. And then day four, the weather was better. It wasn't raining, but the clouds were a little bit lower, but we said, eh, we're going. So we made the two-hour hike to the top, ridgeline, right as we got to the top. The weather kind of rolled in again, and we're like, man, is this going to do it to us again? And we kind of waited it out for about an hour, and it cleared out, and we were glassing some really neat country, some neat singers and we're getting ready to move, and I walked about 100 yards to kind of glass off a different direction, and I spotted two rams, and Ryan came over, and he instantly, instantly put the spawning scope on the ram, and he was like, that's Curly, that's the ram. And so they were below us. We were on the main spine of the ridge of the mountain range, and they were on a finger that came off the opposite side of our camp. And so we were able to just walk down the ridge line, and it only took us about 30 minutes, and we had already closed the distance to 400 yards of uh, Curly and another 9-year-old ram that he was with that had a big old loop of a curl, but he just... You know, he he hadn't finished out quite yet, but he was going to be a pretty solid ram. And uh, when we got to 400 yards, they were on a ridge where the backside of the ridge was grass and the one side of the ridge was shale. And so we were able to walk down the backside of the ridge and close the distance to 160 yards and got to watch them for a long time. But they moved into the shale further and I wasn't, there was nothing I could do with them where they were at. So we just sat there and got... whole bunch of digiscoping video and and watched him at 160 yards um, for like four hours and then finally, you know, it was was getting later and we're like, well, we're not going to get a chance to do anything with him where he's at right now. So we just backed out and uh, went back to camp and that was pretty much day, that was day four. So obviously there's a lot of anticipation for day five and where they were at provided me with some chance to kill to definitely kill get on them with my bow and so the next day we hiked up the ridge did the usual found the sheep on the same finger only now they have no
0: idea you're there they they hadn't seen you guys or nothing okay They, they had no idea we were there um
1: there were six rams though on this on day five as opposed to the day before there was only curly and one other ram and they bedded on the same ridge, but they bedded in the grass. And so now I was able to, I was able to slip the seventy yard easily of the sheep. And we kind of talked about it earlier. I was in position trying to figure out how to get that extra elevation to shoot, and Curly just had a sixth sense because he had uh, been pursued, and he had, you know, he was wise to the game a little bit because. He was with a really big broom ram earlier in the season, and the hunters, the first hunters to chase him, actually killed that broom ram. And he was standing right there when they killed that broom ram. But he was just over the roll of the hill, so they they were going to shoot either one, and they shot the broom ram. And so Curly had been wide to the game, and when he bumped, he didn't. I don't know if he got a little bit of my wind or just caught a little movement or something. He definitely didn't know what was. Up and they only ran like 250 yards into these shale, these shale fingers, and just they all bedded right back down. Like the other ramps had no idea what the heck was going on. And so Ryan had stayed up on top and videotaped all that, and I hiked back up on top with him, and we sat on the ramp for a couple of hours and we're debating on what to do. And you know, Ryan was great in the aspect of he never said like.
0: You he need never to get was the like big just boom run. stick and smash that thing. He didn't say like like yeah. I probably would have been. No. <laughs> yeah,
1: no, he never like gave me any pressure either way. He didn't care. I mean, I know he wanted Curly to get killed, but he never like pushed me to do one thing or the other. And I just started thinking about you know the hunt and stuff. And I guess kind of what I learned about myself is that like. You know I don't make a ton of money, and this is kind of a once in a lifetime opportunity I don't know that I'll ever get to do it again and so what I learned kind of is that if I'm not willing to go home without a sheep, which I wasn't, then there's really no point in taking a bow um, unless you're willing to go home without a ram and I was not willing to do that and so I started thinking about it, and I'm like, you know this is an exceptional sheep. I've seen several rams now, I knew kind of what I was looking at and you could tell with the excitement of Ryan and everybody else about the Ram that it was a really great Ram. And I actually called uh, Nicole, my wife and kind of talked to her on the phone when we were up there. Cause we, we were on the top of the ridge, so we could do anything we wanted and be loud because the wind was blowing so hard up high. Um, but I talked to her on the phone and kind of told her my plan. You know, I like to get her advice. Cause, uh, you know, we just have a, we kind of, she knows how I think and how I operate and, she was like look i think you sh- i think you should kill him with a gun I- if you're going to be happy and i mean he's as good as ram as you say i mean i don't you know you definitely want to kill a ram so i think you should do it and so that was kind of the decision there and uh, once the decision was made it was basically we snuck into snuck out to the edge and uh, i set up the 300 short mag i used uh, the lid of my pack that had a bunch of jackets in it as a rest and uh I set up on him and I dry fired a couple of times just to make sure I was comfortable. And then, uh, I made sure Ryan was rolling video and, you know, he was laying in his bed all by himself and I, I made a really good shot and he just rolled out of his bed and rolled about 500 yards down the shale slide. And, uh, that was it, man. That was kind of the, the, the doll sheep, uh, the end of curly it finally put him down and Ryan was ecstatic to, uh, to finally be able to put his hands on the ram. And uh, I was super pumped. You know, I mean, I knew it was a really good sheep. I just didn't know, like, how good he was until we kind of got down to him and walked up on him. And uh, when you walk up on a 40-inch ram, you're like, it was pretty impressive, to, uh, to say the least. I mean, I couldn't have scripted a better ram for my hunt. You know, I couldn't have killed a ram that I would have wanted to take home more than this, this ram. I mean, he just had everything I was hoping to, to get in a sheep.
0: Yeah, he's a dream ram for sure. I mean, he's just unbelievable. How did he compare to the, you said there was six others. Was was there any others that were um, even remotely close to him as far as size or age or what have you? Yeah,
1: um, there were eight rams in camp by the time I left. And there was one other ram that was of the same size. And he was just a touch longer and he had bigger bases than Curly did, but he didn't carry his mass out to his second and third quarters like Curly did. So he got me a little bit on the bases. Um, the length was pretty comparable. I mean, you know, like a, within a half inch. But uh, Curly kind of surpassed him out on the uh, on the second and third quarter mass measurements. But uh, the the other ramp, this other ramp, was super impressive looking because Curly has like a what I would call a soccer ball size curl. And this Ram had a basketball size curl. So it was really cool to look at. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, I, there were two Rams
0: in camp. Go ahead. I was mainly go ahead. There was two Rams in camp, but the, go back to the question of when you decided to shoot Curly, I think he was with six other Rams. How did he compare to those Rams? Uh, the nine-year-old
1: Ram, which was the number two Ram with Curly was, he's going to be a good Ram next year. Um, mm-hmm. But Curly, there was no question what Ram was better um, when you got to look at him, and Curly was definitely the bigger of the of the two Rams. That nine year old Ram is going to be something impressive come next year, uh, depending on how he puts what he grows and what he pushes out to, but he's going to be a Ram that really has some potential to be a big one.
0: Cool. Cool. And then you were talking about as far as the rams that were in camp, um, Curly stacked up really nice. There was one other ram that was had a similar look, but Curly carried more mass throughout the horn. And we've talked about that a lot on this podcast about when we when we talk about sheep and field judging. Um, I have no experience with thin horns, but um, we're talking big horns. You know, carrying that mass throughout the horn uh, is hugely important. Um, and if you have rams that have the same size bases. Um, you know, the very next thing you look for is is he carrying that mass throughout the whole horn, and um, your ram's just an unbelievable ram, uh, just a dream ram, to be honest with you. Uh, I don't think you could have even drawn one up that, I mean, even better than the one you shot.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I was, you know, really happy to, to have killed him. I mean, I didn't know... You know, I've got more experience with Rockies than I do probably anything else. And I kind of know how we operate as far as you generally get an idea of what kind of mass uh, you're looking at on the sheep. And then you figure out kind of what lengths you're looking at. And, you know, I, I didn't know what to expect on thin horn rams. And I think, you know, the general rule with those sheep up there is that you've got to find a ram. If you're going to knock and in, get into that 160 mark, you've got to find a ram that's got 40 inches 40 inch horns, and he's got to have 40 inches of mass per side. And, um, I think the 40 inch horn thing is, uh, if you find a ram that's got 40 inches, 40 inch horns, he's probably going to push his way into that mark, but it doesn't always happen that way. I mean, they sold a 43 inch ram before I got there, but he didn't have the mass. But I mean, there's no way, in my opinion, that you would have passed that 43 inch ram. I mean, no way, because the look, was so impressive. And, you know, of all the eight rams that we killed, there were two in the one four in the 150s, and I would say upper, you know, mid to upper 150s, and then there were two rams in the upper 140s. And, you know, one of the rams in the upper 140s was killed by a bow hunter, and I mean, that ram was, that was the only opportunity that that particular hunter had to kill a sheep. And, you know, to get it done with your bow and, you know, be 100% on stocks, one and done, that's pretty impressive.
0: That is impressive. And then
1: the other ram that was in the upper 140s was super cool looking because you had a like a curl and a half. It's just the curl was like a softball size curl. But I mean, when you look at him on the hook, you're like, wow, that thing is freaking cool looking. And I mean, he would have been a difficult ram to pass. And up there, the whole deal is about they're trying to shoot ten year old Rams. You know, and that's the that's the goal and the focus is to try and kill a ram that's that's ten years old. And so you're not really gonna pat I mean your guide is gonna encourage you to shoot anything that is ten or older. I mean that's that's the goal, you know?
0: Right. That's an unbelievable story. Let's take a quick break here. Before we talk about your gear and food and and what have you, um, your clothing and such, uh, I want to thank the sponsors of this podcast. Uh, GoHunt.com is actually doing a 30-day free trial. If you go to GoHunt.com forward slash J. Scott, you're going to get a full uh, look, a 30-day trial look at the Insider. So you get full access to the Insider program. Uh, You can check out all the harvest statistics, draw odds, check out all the states, all the animals, and, um, you know, just have full access to the Insider Program. Uh, I highly recommend that. Go check out that free trial. Also, kuyu.com. Check out where the mobile showroom uh, is going to be. You can try on the gear, see what sizes uh, you are. The the mobile showroom truck is going to have every piece of kuyu gear in every size, Um, And you can, you know, every backpack, every pair of boots, um, you know, sleeping bags, all the gear that Kuyu uh, carries will be on the mobile showroom truck. And go to Kuyu.com to find out where the mobile showroom is next. Uh, Phone Scope, Cheston Davis and his crew make an unbelievable adapter to be taking photos and videos immediately through your spotting scope or any binocular, so you can adapt any phone to any optic. If you use the JSCOT16 promo code, you're going to get a 10% discount. Uh, Outdoorsmans.com, 1-800-291-8065, the Optics Authority. If you use the jscot promo code, you're going to get a 10% discount there. Uh, give Cody and the guys that call it the Outdoorsman's and um, t- tell them that you listen to the podcast and that will get you a 10% discount. I want to thank those sponsors. Uh, Brian, I want to go over your gear uh, your from your clothing, your food, your backpack, your tent, etc. Um, if you would just go down the list, um, I know I'm going to get a lot of people wanting to know. So you might as well just start it with the clothing um, and just go from the top down or you know, just go through it all. And just go through all your gear list as well. Okay. Um, well, I mean, I'm obviously a big supporter
1: of the Two U stuff and the Two U gear. So, on my sheep hunt, um, as far as pants were concerned, I took. I'll just go go through it. I took one pair of Alpine pants from my sheep hunt, and then I had the Ultra Merino 145 zip off like long underwear. And I'll tell you what those zip off long underwear are an amazing product I've never had any experience with them but being able to zip them off without having to take your boots off and stuff that that is an incredible um, incredible piece of equipment yeah I had super down pants but I never used them uh, I never needed them for anything uh, my shirt I use the ultramarino one forty five long sleeve shirt the kind of the the crew neck shirt I don't like the the zip the zip collars or anything like that and I've, I only brought one, but I would recommend bringing two. Um, for a jacket, I took my super down jacket and I took my guide jacket. And it was a good combination. The guide jacket is kind of a nice outer shell, kind of protects you from the wind. And obviously, I'd never go anywhere without my super down jacket. I had a Peloton 240, uh, full zip, no hood, kind of, I call it my sweater, kind of my layering system. And then my rain gear was the Chugach, uh NX. I had one set of pants and a, and a jacket. For gloves, I had a thin liner pair, and then I had a pair of guide gloves. My socks, I took three pairs, and I was super thankful for that. I had two pairs of Swiftwick, which are liner, Swiftwick 7 socks. I think you guys took those, Jay, to Alaska, but those things are amazing. Yeah, the Aspire and 7. Then, yeah. And then I took the three pairs of KUU regular socks and one pair of the KUU socks never left my tent. And then I would just rotate socks every day so that I had a dry pair to start the day out with. Because even if you're putting a dry pair of socks in a wet boots it still feels better than putting wet socks in the wet boots. And I took a Peloton 240B, the Ultramarina 145 Net Gator. I had my Scarpa Rebel K boots and then my Gators, uh, U Gators. I opted to take a pair of morell uh, Bare Access 4 trail shoes, and I would much rather have a pair of trail shoes than a pair of Crocs um, just because I have size 13 feet, so having the Crocs are cumbersome, and the morell trail shoes are much smaller, and they weigh less than the Crocs, which is surprising, I know, but they actually weigh less than the Crocs in my size.
0: And are those? And you um, when you walk... say trail shoes, are those the ones that you know, like look like a human foot, like they're just like those sock things, or are they the actual like, uh, like uh, no, a like a no? It's a Teva shoe. Or it's something. not.
1: It's a no. Shoe. It's an actual shoe. Okay. It's it's not like the 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 ones that you put that are like the toe, the toe yeah. shoes and stuff. But uh, and I really like that. My guide had a pair of uh, fly fishing. Uh, shoes that were fairly common name, real lightweight shoe that he wore Probably like when we were walking champs. around camp. But yes, that's exactly what they were.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: And so, but I liked having those instead of um, Crocs. Crocs, and they just took up a lot less space and they weighed less. And then something that took me a long time to figure out what I wanted to take was what kind of boxers I wanted to take, and I ended up going with. Exo official nine inch inseam boxers that I found at REI and I actually ordered them online and they were absolutely amazing. Um, They're lightweight. They do not stink. Um, I'm a big fan of Under Armour boxers, but you can't wear Under Armour boxers for seven days because you won't be able to freaking stand yourself. (laughs) And those Exo official boxers were incredible. I tried, you know, the first light uh, red, 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 Something red setter boxers or something like that, and I just didn't like the way they fit because I want like a compression pant boxer, and I want the longer inseam so you don't have to worry about any like chafing or anything on the inside of your legs. And so I was super super happy with those. And that was my that's my overall clothing that I took. A um, couple things that I would I'll touch on right now that I would recommend that I might have done differently is. I might have just taken a Yukon rain jacket and gotten rid of my guide jacket and my two gas rain jacket and potentially my Peloton 240 Cause that Yukon rain jacket is like four ounces more than the guide jacket. And if I can get rid of the guide jacket and the two gas rain jacket, then I'm saving weight.
0: Yeah.
1: And that Yukon jacket's pretty, uh, pretty stout when it comes to dealing with the rain and things like that. So that might've been something that I would look into doing, um, I never, I rarely wore that Peloton 240, so, I mean, if I could cut out three articles of clothing in exchange for one, uh, you definitely got to have some sort of a shell to protect from the wind and stuff, because the wind definitely gets ripping, and, you know, might be something that I would look into doing differently, but that would, you know, that's just, it's kind of a personal preference, and having some knowledge of what I've done before, that would be something I would look at.
0: Yeah, I mean, coming from Arizona, it was 110 15 degrees all summer. It's kind of hard to, you know, you, you're trying to grasp what kind of temperature. I'm sure you were making sure you wanted to be warm, but I think you probably ended up realizing that on that sheep hunt portion of your hunt, it you know, you were moving quite a bit and, you know, you can you can you can leave quite a bit of stuff at home and and you do just fine without it. Yeah, no, and I mean I think it would have been a good trade-off and I would have liked to have had that
1: kind of more, the sturdier rain, uh, sturdier rain, uh, rain jacket than uh, the two-gash one that I have. The two-gash works fine, but I mean, if if you're sitting there for four hours getting beat down in the rain, you know, over time, everything's going to lose some of its ability to repel water and you're going to end up wet to some extent. Um, The other thing that, I would have brought is that I would have brought a, uh, a heavier set of waterproof gloves, like the Yukon pro gloves, potentially the guy gloves were good and they did pretty well. But once they got wet, you know, it kind of sucks to have wet hands. And so I would have maybe just brought the Yukon pro gloves and maybe a really lightweight pair to uh, maneuver around in, just to keep my hands, you know, warm, but it ultimately wasn't a huge issue. It's is just something I would look at.
0: Okay, what about the rest um, of
1: my gear? You know, I so saw going in my gear, a couple of things that I think are really important to note is that one thing that you're not, no one really tells you and it, did, it didn't say in the gear list, is that you're going to be given five pounds of salt to carry. So you got to factor that in to your pack weight. So like when I got there, I got basically a Nalgene bottle full of salt and it's your responsibility to carry that in. Now, you don't necessarily have to carry it every day with you, but you've got to carry it in the camp so that in the event you kill something and it takes three or four days to get in there, you, you have a way to salt your hide. Now, we never used the salt because we were able to get a plane in within 24 hours of killing an animal um, but definitely something to factor in because five pound added to your pack weight is quite a bit. the The gear thing that for me that that were absolutely couldn't go without is like, Leuco Tape was incredible. Um, there's no need for you to carry moles anything of that nature if you have Leuco Tape. In my opinion, did you pre-tape? Um, it was not something.
0: Did you pre-tape or did you just tape as you go? I didn't pre-tape
1: anything. I only taped my left heel on the third day because I had a little bit of a warm spot. And that was the only thing I taped. Um, but my guide, from being in the, in there for like 50 days and losing weight and stuff, his hip belt was starting to rub and raw on his hips. And so we taped up his hip on the one side and it helped him, you know, solve that problem. And I mean, I don't know why if people... Ever even buy moleskin anymore? Because I'll never carry moleskin anymore. As long as I got Leukotape. tape, I would carry an entire roll of Leukotape up there. And the minute you feel a hot spot, or if you're prone to blisters, just pre-tape your heels and pre-tape wherever, and move on. I mean, that stuff lasted easily seven, eight days, no problem, and it solved my solved any problem you could have. I didn't have major issues but i mean to me if there's one piece of gear that's super critical having that luco tape is uh was worth its weight in gold
0: yeah i i second that for sure i pre-taped uh, justin schaefer recommended pre-taping and um it's just great stuff i mean it's it's fantastic stuff what else you got rims yeah um so I took an Icon Pro 7200
1: with a rainfly. Uh, rainfly was great, fit over my bow, attached to the pack, and everything of that nature. I took my own tent. I took a Thule Mountain Star two-person uh, tent with aluminum poles. Um, I was. I would recommend everyone take their own tent if that's what they're comfortable with, because you know, Tavis provides. He was providing Thule uh, Mountain Star two-person tents, but. You don't know what kind of care the hunter right before you took of that and neither does Tavis. And so if you got a tent that leaked or got a tent that had a hole or something, it would just suck. So I would, I mean, Tavis provides great gear, but Tavis can't monitor what every other hunter does to his gear and things like that. So I took the QU Mountain Star two-person tent and do not take it. And I was told aluminum poles are the only way to go because if you get a niche in a in the uh, fiberglass not fiberglass uh, carbon, in the fiber. uh, carbon carbon fiberglass. fiber poles, then they just shatter, um, is what I was told. So I never had that experience, but I was happy with the tent. I took a Therm-a-Rest sleeping pad. Uh, I took a Montbell zero degree sleeping bag that was longer in length, and so was my sleeping ba- pad because I'm six foot three, and it was worth a little bit extra weight to have that extra length for sure. Um, I took my Swarovski 1040 TL Rangers like I mentioned. I took the SPS 65 spotting scope. It was HD with that 25 to 50 wide angle eyepiece. I used a, vinyl har- a marsupial gear size small vinyl harness. Um, Jim Graham's a pretty good guy. It's the local company and uh, I really like the product. It uh, works well. works well for me up there. My go-to rangefinder was a Leopold RX 1200i which is just an exceptional rangefinder for angle compensation. That's what a lot of the real competitive archers use, and things of that nature. I took a carbon fiber slick tripod. that's a thir- six thirteen CF. It's pretty lightweight. I utilize that trip, the uh, outdoorsman's fan head, and the outdoorsman tripod adapter. Um, I took two Easton trekking poles that were carbon fiber, and uh, I would highly recommend that you take trekking poles uh, because it was extremely helpful with heavy loads and kind of balancing yourself. I think we've talked about that before, Jay, but uh, I wouldn't go anywhere without trekking poles. And uh, I'm hoping that you'll bring them back to me next year because I left them next to the moose camp, and I'm hoping that Travis will pick them up and give them to you to bring back to me next year.
0: (laughs) Maybe I just won't bring them (laughs) next year, and I'll I'll make sure to bring yours back. Um, For sure take two, or would you only take one if you had to do it again? I'd take two. Yeah,
1: me too. Yeah, I would absolutely take two. Um, I took a a Goal Zero Nomad 7 solar charger, and, you know, there's some reviews online about Goal Zero stuff that are not always favorable. My experience was nothing but exceptional. That solar charger worked awesome, and I paired it with a, a Venture 30, a power pack, and then I also had a Gold Zero Flip 20 power pack, and those things were incredible. Um, they worked great. Um, I was super happy with them. I took two headlamps. Probably really get away with one. I took a Petzl Actic and a Petzl React. Uh, the Actic operates off lithium batteries, and the React operates off a rechargeable. I'm favorable toward taking a headlamp that uses batteries. Um, if you can find one preferably that has a rechargeable battery and will take batteries, that would be my favor. But I just, I don't want to have to recharge a headlamp if something happens. I'd like to just be able to throw batteries in it. And I never had to change the batteries in my headlamp the whole time I was there. And the night I killed my sheep, I probably ran it for, I don't know, eight or nine hours. Um, I took a Canon G9X uh, camera with the top times-up adapter setup, and it was incredible. I use a satellite, Iridium uh, Radium Go satellite uh, device, basically converts your iPhone into a sat phone, allows you to text with it. Um, a little bit heavy, maybe slightly heavier than a, than a sat phone, but I don't, I'm not sure that it is, and then I also brought my iPhone 7 in a life group case with the uh, phone scope, Al Dorsen's phone scope adapter. I had downloaded all the maps for where I was going to be on my iPhone Seven, and I use that as a GPS. And having that Luxus case on it means that you didn't have to worry about it getting wet or anything of that nature.
0: How was the topo maps? Um, h- how useful was that? I hardly used them, but they were
1: super accurate, and they did everything I needed them to do. Okay. And then I took six triple A lithium batteries for my solely for my headlamps, and then I had uh, I had two zip or three zip dry bags, one large, two small, and then three roll top dry bags from Kuyu. They're Kuyu ones, two medium, one small. I opted for a two liter platypus bladder, which was more than enough because you pair that with a one liter Nalgene, you got your three liters. And that was fine. Did you purify um, your
0: water or just drink it right out of extremes?
1: No, I didn't purify anything. I even drank I drank lake water for 7 days when I was moose hunting and I was fine. Huh. Didn't taste as good as the stream water, but it was fine.
0: Was there any fish um, was there any fish in the streams or in the lake? Yeah, there was Arctic char in the in the streams and then there was Arctic char and grayling in the lakes. Like right by your sheep camp there were Arctic char like you could catch them.
1: Yeah. No way. Yep, and then when I went to Moose Camp on the lake, I, we should have taken a fishing pole because we would have caught a bunch of fish. Really? Um, I took a titanium cup, a GSI Outdoors titanium cup that you can put right on your pocket rocket, and it holds all your stuff inside of it. Um, I took a Thermarest butt pad. If I was going to do things differently, I would have. T- my Thermarest butt pad was like twelve inches by twelve inches, and I would take a Thermarest butt pad that was like twenty-four inches by twenty-four inches because. You want it with you all the time because if you're raining and you have to sit out on the tundra, the grass, you don't want to freaking sit, you know, and get your butt all wet. And then you also use it as kind of a doormat in and out of your tent. And so I would take one that's bigger than normal. And in the event that you get stuck out all night, you can at least give you some insulation from the ground and sit on that. A couple of things that I wish I had. Um, probably the number one thing that I wish I may have had would have been a lightweight shelter tarp. So several companies make those, but when you're on top of the ridge or on top of the mountain and it's raining, there's not a tree in sight. So you're just getting pounded by rain. And if you can use, even if it's a 12 foot by 12 foot tarp that weighs, you know, they weigh right out a pound or a little less and you prop them up with your trekking poles, just that little bit of comfort to get out of the rain makes a huge difference in how long and how comfortable you are staying up on the mountain. So that's, a, that's something that if there was one thing I wish I could bring, that's what I would have brought for sure is to have that. It's probably, oh, yeah, and my wife,
0: of course. She just walked in, so
1: she wishes she could have gone too.
0: Did you um, hear about me whipping out an umbrella up there in Alaska? I didn't, but uh, I bet you were darn glad to have it. (laughs) I got ridiculed by uh, Joe, our guide, and Dar, of course, but um, after about 30 minutes of rain, they both were trying to get under it with me. Yeah, no, I mean, having that shelter tarp, I would even devote
1: a pound and a half to that thing to get one that's like 12 feet by 12 feet. I'm sorry, 12, yeah, 12 feet by 12 feet or something like that because it would be incredible to do that, and it'd be a lot easier to,
0: uh, to stay dry.
1: It's all about comfort. The more comfortable you are, the longer you can stay up on the mountain, you know?
0: Yeah. Um, any other things you would add up there? My guide had a Helinox
1: chair, which is a little, like, pound-and-a-half chair that has, like, a little 30-degree de- uh, like, recline to it, and I tell you, It was nice to have, especially for him when he's taping out my caribou and stuff like that back at camp. It was a pretty nice little feature to have. It's not a necessity by any means, but he carries it everywhere he goes. And he's like, man, it just saves you when you're getting ready in the morning. You can sit in it, put your shoes on, and things like that. And I would think for maybe guys that are a little bit older or a little less mobile, it would be just something that's really worth having.
0: Talk about your food.
1: Um, so Tavis provides any, pretty much any mountain house meal you want, all the candy bars you can imagine. Um, he provides a bunch of the Costco, like peanut packages and cashew packages and almond packages, um, a bunch of top ramen, all the coffee that you can, that you want. And, uh, a bunch of adding additives for like top ramen uh, where you can add like, freeze-dried steak and stuff like that to it. And, I mean, he really has a really good food selection there. So, I mean, I would say that you don't need to necessarily bring all of your food unless there's something specific you want. I mean, he had basically all the Mountain House flavors that you could ever want. Um, He had, you know, just a lot of the food that you would want. So, what I ended up doing and eating was I had... Breakfast was two oatmeal packets, with, and I would mix in a packet of, of Justin's peanut butter. Um, bring in those little individual packets of peanut butter if it's something you like, or almond butter or whatever. I would definitely bring those because that was not something that would be the norm to be provided. Um, I had a breakfast skillet every once in a while for for lunch, or I mean for breakfast. I brought brought some of those on my own.
0: I liked those. Breakfast. Breakfast. I like those skillets.
1: Yeah, Tavis had the breakfast like eggs and stuff, but the skillets are nice because they have kind of a good mixture of stuff. Yeah. Um, and then that would pretty much consist that and coffee. I took tra- I like Trader Joe's instant coffee. It's freeze dried coffee and it already has um, cream and sugar mixed in it. To me, it's a million times better than the Starbucks stuff, um, just taste wise. And two packets is enough for a great cup of coffee. But uh, Tavis provides, you know, cappuccino mix and all sorts of stuff. It's really good, too. Lunch pretty much consisted of Cliff bars, candy bars. Um, I had made Costco trail mix, and I mixed in a, a whole bag of peanut M&Ms with two servings of Costco trail mix for every day. And uh, Top Ramen. You know, Top Ramen, surprisingly, is has like 500 calories in it. Actually c- contains nine grams of protein and uh, is actually pretty uh, – Pretty good, and when it's a cold day outside, the broth is just tasty, and then you know provides some uh, good, you know, food for you, and it it's lightweight and easy to pack around. Um, dinner was a mountain house, and it followed with a candy bar, and then I took wilderness athlete hydrate and recover at least one packet a day, and then I took uh, Propel packets, so I like the Propel packets, and I took two of those every day. With me and I would fill my Nalgene bottle with Propel and then my my regular bladder would have just straight water in it.
0: Right on. If I was
1: going to do things a little, if I would do things a little differently, I would have brought um, some cheese. I'd have probably brought some sort of a chip or a cheese it or something along that nature. And then one of the other guys had a uh, had different freeze dried meals that he had brought up there which was a company called Heather's Choice which I believe is based out of Alaska and they're actually smaller like half the size as far as packaging is concerned and they're really loaded with a lot of good stuff so it might be nice to have a couple of those just to kind of mix in there's some really really unique flavors that uh, she has and uh, they're a little more expensive but they're pretty darn uh, good and it's kind of nice to have a different change i mean my go-to my two go-to mountain house meals was freaking chicken and rice because it was like the most calories you could get in a mountain house and then uh biscuits and gravy were my two go-to mountain house meals
0: you know um i had that uh heather of heather's choice uh had her on a podcast uh last summer uh, and she does uh she's she's really coming out with some really good products and i know she's uh, a lot of a lot of people are really liking it. So I definitely encourage people to check it out. Um, she seemed like a really cool cat. And um, okay, so we've covered the food. We've covered the gear. Um, unbelievable hunt. So then now you've got your doll sheep down. You've got a mountain caribou down. And then it was kind of like you kind of decided that you might want to go check out some moose. Tell me about that uh, briefly. Well, you know, I was back in
1: camp on the evening of day six and I had a 15-day hunt and I was there with you know another guy and so I mean I wasn't going anywhere and uh, Mike was still hunting and I was going to go help Mike but Mike was a day's hike from his uh from an airstrip and you know I just didn't want to mess up whatever him and his guide had going you know sometimes a third person can kind of help or kind of hurt the situation and I didn't want to impact whatever he had going with his guide and so I had talked to Tavis and said, Hey, you know initially I asked him if I could get another caribou tag and he's like, Well, you can only you can only kill one caribou and I was like, Well what about a moose tag? And he's like, Well moose doesn't open till September first and I was like, Yeah, that'll still give me six days to hunt moose and so we worked it out to where I could go hunt moose and uh spent six days looking at moose and seeing a lot of moose and you know, saw one moose that I probably would have been willing to uh, put an arrow in, but uh, ultimately the moose was like three miles from where we could get the plane to, and you know, I wasn't packing a freaking—I wasn't packing 800 pounds of animal three miles across the tundra. It Just wasn't uh, was not going to happen. Were they calling at all? So we we just no. Um, I did hear uh, a female moose calling to her calf, but they were just their rut pretty much coincides with our elk ride. Gotcha. So I would say they were just in the midst of rubbing off the velvet and they're hot and heavy by about the 15th of September. And so they were just starting to get kind of get frisky with it. And, uh, you know, I didn't have to shoot a moose, but it was nice to go look at moose and look at some different things and kind of have that opportunity. And Tavis was cool about it. And, uh, you know, we were only eight miles from, the main camp and we could actually glass the main camp every day. And we saw seven, to eight moose a day. Just, you know, we were waiting for one to get himself in a position close to the, the lake so that we could actually make it happen. And, uh, it just never worked out, which was okay. I mean, I already had a super successful hunt. I wasn't disappointed at all, not to shoot a moose.
0: And you saw, uh, Travis and Brad Wiest in the airport were coming back cause we had them on the podcast and they were doing a 21 day hunt where they were doing doll sheep, uh, mountain caribou and a moose hunt. Where'd you see those guys? Yeah, are? I saw
1: them actually, I saw them at base camp cause they, the flight that they came in on is the flight that I took out. And so we got to chat with them for about five minutes. You know, they were super jacked and super excited and, uh, you know, they're the last hunt of the year at Arctic Red and, you know, the weather was changing quite a bit. I think that, you know, their moose hunt's going to be exceptional, but I think their main focus was obviously trying to kill, kill sheep. And so, I mean, I think that they're going to get opportunities to kill sheep and it'll ultimately be up to them uh, if they kill a sheep, because I, I just, I don't see it not, not getting a chance. It's just a matter of, whether uh, they can capitalize on those chances they get and uh, and go from there, and how much time they're going to devote to uh, chasing, you know, each animal. I don't, you know, I don't know that they'll get a chance to kill all three animals that they're hunting, but uh, they're definitely going to see them all, and they're just going to have to make that decision. I, had, I told them to hold out for a big caribou because uh, there's definitely a chance to kill a giant caribou up there i mean one of them that came into camp was like 450 uh which was an absolute slob of a caribou and so i mean they definitely have some chances to do some really cool things with that but uh they were excited and they were ready to go and the weather had been pretty good the last couple of days before they got there so i think they were going to have some decent weather days
0: good good and uh jonesy he he got a sheep and a caribou both right Yeah, Mike uh,
1: stuck it out with his bow for nine days and ended up shooting a ram that he'd been trying to kill with his bow on the ninth day and uh, made a good shot. Real solid upper 150s ram that uh, he was able to, to put on the ground. And then he flew straight from there to caribou camp and spent five days chasing caribou and ended up killing a caribou with his bow on the 14th the morning of the four or no the evening of the 14th day so he he spent one night in base camp and it was basically the night of the 14th day I mean he was he he busted his tail and worked hard and uh got his money's worth (laughs) there's a couple yeah there's a couple pictures of him when he has his sheep on his pack and his entire camp on his pack and I mean I swear the pack
0: is twice as tall as he is Wow. Well, that's awesome. Well, it sounds like both you guys had a phenomenal time, and uh, sounds like you had great, great adventure there at Arctic Red. Um, And I haven't talked to Jonesy, but uh, I'm I'm even more pumped now about my hunt uh, coming up in eighteen. After after hearing all this. Yeah. No. I would. uh,
1: uh, You're going to have a good hunt. I would. One of the things I didn't tell you, but I would. You should probably just take two rifles with you because it's the same cost whether you check one or two um, with customs. It's the same permit fee for two guns, and you can just leave one of the guns in camp just in case you had some sort of an issue. Um, And there's a couple other little things that you could do, but uh, that's one of the things that jumped out at me because both guns were in my name, so we only had to pay one fee, and it was like 25 bucks to get get the gun permit from uh, customs in Canada. And it was it would be worth having too, just in case you had a gun problem because you're gonna your guide guns are typically pistol grip shotguns with buckshot and stuff like that, or an iron sight, you know, three hundred, you know, three hundred Win Mag or a forty five seventy or something like that. Just they're mainly bear guns, you know.
0: Yeah. Speaking of bears, how many did you see? I saw seven. I think Mike saw or 12 and
1: then I believe the other guy one of the guys in camp saw a total of like 16 um, there's a lot of freaking bears in our Tigred, and they're not hunted so they are not afraid um, of people and they typically have to put one or two down on a charge um, every year at, at, at Arctic Red and at basically every um, every one of the uh, operations up there typically has some sort of a bear encounter every year where they end up putting one down. We didn't have that, and I was thankful for that. I didn't really want to have uh, have to be chased around by a bear.
0: What was that one video you sent me? There's a bear, and he's rubbing his butt on the ground, and he had rooted <laughs> the ground all out. <laughs> Yeah, that was a big boar that dug a huge hole chasing, like, a marmot, and (laughs) it was, like, a
1: six-foot deep hole, and he just sat in that hole and just started scratching himself. It was pretty comical.
0: (laughs) It's pretty good. But, uh, they were fun to watch, man. Well, man, you had an awesome hunt. It's been fun hearing about it. What's next for you?
1: Uh, my wife's got that 23 North early rifle bull tag here in, uh, two weeks, and so that'll be, uh... That'll be the next adventure. I think we're going to go up and scout this coming weekend and see what we can turn up.
0: So you're not going to hunt archery deer yourself?
1: No. Uh, I only. The season is only open for like another five days, and I got enough stuff going on. I got to get back to work after being gone for three weeks.
0: Yeah, going to focus on elk, so she's got a great tag, and that's going to be a whole other exciting uh, time for you guys. Um, buddy, I appreciate you spending time here with us, and um, I want to encourage uh, everybody to check out Brian's Instagram page. Um, and what is it, brian.rimza What's your page? Uh, Instagram's just brimza Um uh, And I'm going to also feature some pictures that Brian sent me on my Instagram page to kind of promote this podcast. And, uh, yeah, just... Uh, um, congratulate you on an unbelievable uh trip and two great trophies and that that doll sheep is uh you know if you're only going to go one time doll sheep hunting and you shoot a ram like that i mean that's just it's unbelievable that's three quarters of your slam so i mean really uh you just have a stone sheep and you'll have shot the grand slam which is a phenomenal accomplishment of someone uh you know you're not very old yeah i don't know that when or if a stone will be in my card but maybe
1: if with a little luck it'll uh i'll find a way to make it happen
0: i'm sure you will well uh buddy awesome uh having you on god bless you and uh until we see you next time just keep uh keep hammering out there okay all right sound good thanks jay all right buddy bye